Good morning. It is a wonderful morning to be gathering together to worship the Lord. We are thankful for the Lord providing the showers as well as protection uh, in the storm. Last night we were coming home from Lake Adam and we, we drove through the worst of the storm. There was a little bit of hail. It was raining so hard that with the windshield wipers on full blast, uh, we were still going about 50 kilometers an hour and could barely see the center line. So it was at that point where you turn on the hazard lights and pull off to the side a little bit because it was raining so hard. And uh, at one point, I looked in the rearview mirror and the windshield wipers are going about this speed and I see Theo's head going back and forth about the same speed, something like this. <laughs> So uh, I think that was his way of soothing himself in the storm, but he seemed to be, be perfectly fine. He was uh, in, in rhythm with the windshield wipers. And uh, I look over, and there's Declan next to him with his hands over his ears like this. So <laughs> there was different ways of coping, but we're thankful that the Lord kept us safe while we were on the road. We are uh, mindful this morning as well that we are, uh, as a church family, going through different stages of life, and we want to think especially of, of Barry and Nancy on the loss of, of your sister-in-law this past week. We, we know that this has been a, a long, hard journey, and especially for your brother, Reg, Reg Lowen, and the passing of your, your sister, Sharon Lowen, and so we just want to lift you up in, in our thoughts and prayers here today. We know you're going through a time of grief, and so we grieve with you, and so may the Lord be with you in this time. Uh, we also want to uh, acknowledge, I see that Derek and Michelle are here this morning, so you weren't here the morning that it was announced that you had had your baby, so we just want to congratulate you in person, and congratulations to you on the, on the birth of your, your happy, healthy baby girl, so congratulations to you. We're very happy for you. Would you now bow with me, and let's ask the Lord's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who knows us altogether, and no matter what season of life we are going through, you are still good, and you are still in control. And so we thank you, God, that even in times of joy or in times of sorrow, you are near to us. And so we thank you for that, God. We thank you for the blessing of new life. We thank you for, for a new baby that was born to Derek and Michelle. And we thank you as well, Lord, for the other children in our church family who you've blessed us with, we pray, Lord, that your hand would be upon them and that you would give us wisdom and much love in guiding them towards you. We pray, Lord, for Barry and Nancy right now, Lord, as they are going through a time of grief. We lift them up to you, Lord, as the God of comfort. And we thank you for the assurance of your word that we even heard last Sunday, that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so we ask for your comfort, Lord, for them. And we thank you as well that we have assurance that Sharon was a believer. She knew you as her Lord and Savior, and so we have hope today that she is with you, that her, her long battle and suffering is over, and that she is at home with you. And so we pray that there could be peace and comfort from that thought. We pray especially for Reg, her husband, as he deals through this new transition in life, as he grieves and as he learns how to pick up his life moving forward, we pray that you would be very near to him and guide him by your spirit. We pray now, Lord, for this morning, for this word that you have laid before us. We thank you for your word. We know that it is alive and active, that it speaks to us, Lord, and so we just invite your Holy Spirit now to help us set aside distractions, to focus in on what you have for us this morning. I pray that you would speak through it, speak through me, your servant, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
There's a story told of the coach at Auburn University by the name of Shug Jordan, who once asked a former linebacker of his that he had coached in younger years by the name of Mike Collin if he would help him do some recruiting for his football team for the next year. Mike said, sure, coach, what kind of player are you looking for? To which the coach replied, well, Mike, you know there's that fellow, you knock him down, and he just stays down? Mike said, we don't want him, do we, coach? No, that's right. Then there's that fellow, you knock him down, and he gets up, you knock him down again, and he stays down? We don't want him either, do we, coach? No, that's right, Mike. But then there's that fellow, you knock him down, he gets back up. You knock him down, he gets back up. You knock him down, he gets back up. Mike said, that's the guy we want, isn't it, coach? Coach answered, no, Mike, we don't want him either. I want you to find the guy who keeps knocking everybody down. That's football, right? (laughs) Now, that wasn't quite the ending of that story that you were expecting, was it? And one of the things we discover is that throughout the pages of Scripture, we find God constantly surprising us by recruiting unexpected people. This is one of God's favorite things to do, is selecting people to do His will and accomplish His purposes from the list of people that we would never, ever consider. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29 gives us part of the reason why God delights in operating that way. We read there, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You see, God deliberately chooses people that others overlook. Why? He does so because the glory belongs to him and to him alone. And so when someone boasts in their own strength, in their own skill or ability, their own achievements, rather than in God, they are robbing God of the glory that he rightfully deserves. But when God uses someone with little or no skill, power or ability to achieve a great victory, then everyone can clearly see that God did it, and they can give him the praise for it. This is the premise and the basic scenario that we see play out in our text this morning in the lives of King Saul and a shepherd boy named David. I want you to turn there with me if you have your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and that'll be the basis of our study this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 16, and there to refresh our memories, let's read verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now you see here, verse 1 shows us that God has a problem, if you will. He needs to find a new king for his nation, for his chosen people. He needs to find a replacement for King Saul. Now, the question has to be raised, why? Why is God looking for a replacement for King Saul? You know, Saul seemed to be the complete package insofar as human kings go. He was handsome. He was athletic. He was tall. The Bible records that he was a head taller than all of the other men in Israel. 
And initially, Saul showed a fair amount of courage, wisdom, and even humility as the ruler of Israel. And so he was very popular. He was popular with the people, and even Samuel liked him. And we see in verse 1 that God confronts Samuel mourning over the fact that he has rejected Saul as king. This is, this is so distraught, Samuel, that he's actually shedding tears. He's in grief because he thinks so highly of Saul. And so here we see, quite simply, everyone liked Saul. Everyone was impressed by him. And the only problem was Saul became overly impressed by himself. The successes and victories in battle, as they began to roll along uh, and began to come his way, he began to believe that he was responsible for these victories, that it was by his skill, his ability as a leader, as a king, and as a warrior that was bringing about these victories. And so he begins to believe in his own press. The people are singing his praises, and he's starting to feel pretty good about himself. And this begins a series of seemingly small acts of disobedience in following God's instructions. The result of this is that God becomes grieved that he has made Saul king in the first place. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 12, we read that finally at the culmination of all of these small acts of disobedience, we read that after having victory over the Amalekites, Saul goes to the top of Mount Carmel and sets up a monument in his own honor. Is that what a king of God's people should be doing? Going to the top of a tall mountain and erecting a monument in your own honor? Absolutely not. If he was going to be erecting monuments in honor of a victory, it should be to the Lord. But here we see he is honoring himself. He is puffed up by pride and he is taking the glory for himself. And finally, God just has enough. And speaking through the high priest Samuel, he tells Saul that he will tear the kingdom from him and give it to another, one better than him. And he then reaffirms the warning that he had given to Saul earlier in 1 Samuel 13 and verse 14, where Samuel says to Saul, But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought for a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Here we see that God is looking for a leader. He is looking for a man after his own heart. And so here we see that God has been searching the land, and God has finally found him. A man after his own heart. In fact, at this point, it is a boy after his own heart. A boy named David. Now, as we come upon the character of David, I don't think I need to give you too much background on his character or his, his achievements. We know his story quite well. It's one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. Just for a quick rundown for you, his father's name is Jesse. David is the youngest of eight brothers, the baby of the family. As such, he has given the least desired job on the entire family farm, that of tending the sheep. Now, if you want comparables to modern day, it's sort of like on the family farm operation. You know, it's like the guy who's running around picking up stones by hand, throwing them onto the back of the stone boat. You know, that's the kind of job it is. Or, or shoveling out the chicken coop by hand. You know, it's the sort of jobs that dad or big brother don't want to do. So if they have a younger brother to pass the buck along to, that's what happens. And notice how it's probably been passed along probably eight times because... 
Eliab, big brother, didn't want to do this. Next brother doesn't want to do it. All the way down, who's tending the sheep? David, the youngest. The least desirable of the family occupations. And so here we see that he's given the the least of the jobs being the youngest in the family. We see also that David's own father, Jesse, didn't think overly highly or very much of David. In verses 8 to 10, we read that when the high priest Samuel comes to town and he gives Jesse the opportunity to parade his sons before him, telling him that one of them will be chosen for an important task, Jesse doesn't even bother bringing David before Samuel. Samuel says, bring all your sons before me, but David, he just stays out in the fields. His own father didn't think very highly of David. And so later on in verse, uh, later on in chapter 17 and verse 28, we also find out that David's brothers didn't think very highly of David. We see there the famous story that when David comes to the battlefield to bring his, his brother's food before the famous encounter with Goliath, he shows up and here we read that when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard David speaking with the men, he burned with anger at David and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Oh, big brother's giving it to little brother with both barrels. I know how wicked and conceited your heart is. You just want to see a fight. That's all you're doing here. His brothers didn't think very highly of David. And of course, finally, in the showdown with Goliath, we see that Goliath certainly wasn't impressed with David. 1 Samuel 17 and verse 42 informs us that when Goliath looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, he despised him. Despised. He thought of him as less than nothing, dirt, something that just didn't even belong before him. And so here we see that in everyone's estimation, David is the runt of the litter. The runt of the litter, the the smallest in the heap. No one thinks very much of David. No one thinks highly of his future or his present status. No one gave him a second thought, and we finally see that the nail in the coffin of what people think of David is from Samuel himself. Samuel, we see, was far more impressed with David's older brothers. Verse 6 of chapter 16, we read, When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Samuel took one look at Eliab and just thinks, this is the man. He fits the profile. He's strong. He's full-grown. He's mature. He's handsome. He's tall. In other words, he's a lot like Saul. You see, Samuel's looking for another Saul. Remember, Samuel really likes Saul, and so he's thinking, okay, How's God going to do better than Saul? Maybe Eliab was actually more physically impressive than Saul. This certainly must be the next king. And so here we see the Lord finally gives Samuel a very important lesson. Verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. What? Do not consider it? What do you mean, do not consider his appearance or his height? These are like very important criteria for being a king because you've got to remember in that time, a king by necessity needed to be a warrior. There was no room for, for, you know, little wimpy politicians in that day. A king ruled by might. 
If he couldn't wield a sword, if he couldn't lead his men in battle, he was not fit to rule. And so physical stature and and the ability to swing a sword was of paramount importance for an ancient king. And so God is telling him, don't consider those things. This is going against all conventional wisdom. When God says to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. And then God says this. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Remember what Samuel told Saul earlier. He said, I am looking for a man after my own heart. And he had been seeking the land, looking for him, and he has found him in a boy. Here we see the Lord looks at the heart. He looks at what is inside of you. What is your character? What is your heartbeat towards God? You see, my friends, the reality of all of this is God isn't impressed by us. <laughs> God isn't impressed by us one bit. He's not impressed by how many trophies you've got sitting on your, on your shelf from past sporting accomplishments. Yeah, I've got a couple of ribbons and a couple of trophies stashed away in some, some boxes and a couple of things up on a shelf here or there. But you know what? God could care less about those things. He's not impressed by them. He's not impressed by how handsome you are, how pretty, strong, fit, tall you are. He's not impressed by your wealth, by your possessions, how big your your bank account is. He's not impressed by how smart you are either. He's not impressed by how well you can answer those Jeopardy questions, how many degrees you have, how many letters are behind your name. That doesn't impress God. He's not impressed by your pedigree either, your, your family, what your lineage is, your, your last name. Those things don't impress him. Your popularity or your reputation, those don't impress him either. All of the things that I have just listed are the things that impress us, aren't they? When we are going to evaluate another person, we use these criteria, and we will be impressed by them if we find them to our liking. But these things do not impress God, so what does? What is God looking for? Well, when God looks within a heart, this is what he says he is looking for. 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9 gives us this little nugget of truth. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Did you catch that? God is looking throughout the earth, judging men's hearts, women's hearts, boys' and girls' hearts, not by how impressive they are by man's standards, but by whether or not their hearts are fully committed to him. And if he finds that, when he finds that, he is the one who strengthens that life. Because look, it says, he strengthens those whose hearts are are fully committed to him. David didn't have a whole lot going for him by man's standards. He was the runt of the litter. But when God saw his heart, he saw a heart that sought for him, was committed to him, beat after him, and so God came with the strength. And today, God is actively looking into the heart of every single man, woman, and child upon this earth. I believe he never stops searching our hearts, looking, seeking, for anyone who is ready and willing to be totally committed to him and to his cause, whose hearts are after his heart, his purposes, and his goals for the world around us. 
Now, we often assume that David being a man after God's own heart, we assume that that meant that he was just like God all the time. His heart was after God's heart, so that means he was just like God. But then when we read David's full story and discover later on adultery and murder on the resume, we realize that couldn't be further from the truth. David wasn't like God all the time, certainly not. He had some serious failures. So what then does being after God's heart mean? I want you to follow along with me because this is really important, I believe. It means quite literally that David was after God. He was after him. He was pursuing him. He was chasing after God with a whole heart, with a total commitment. That is what the Bible primarily means by saying that David was after God's own heart. It wasn't that he was just like God all the time. It was that he was after him all the time. He was pursuing, chasing, seeking, desiring God's heart more than anything else in his life. And did he do so perfectly? Of course not. But it was the all-in, single-minded purpose that God was looking for. And he found it in a shepherd boy. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 13 says this, You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. David's pursuit of God was all in. All of his heart was in this pursuit. And God was delighted by it. God was impressed by David's commitment. And so he poured out his strength and his presence into his life. The story is told of three military recruiters who showed up to address a high school of graduates, a high school class of graduates. Each recruiter, eager to get the most students enrolled in their particular branch of the military, was eager to give a good pitch. And so representing the different branches of the military that day was the Army, the Navy, and the Marine Corps. Now, each presenter was told that they had 15 minutes to make their pitch to try to get students to sign up with their branch of the service. The Army and Navy recruiters went first, and they got a little carried away. And so when it came time for the Marine recruiter to speak, he only had two minutes remaining on the clock. He walked up onto the platform and stood utterly silent for the first minute. Everyone just stared at him as 60 seconds ticked by on the clock without a word being uttered. Finally, he barked out, I doubt whether there are two or three of you in this room who could even cut it in the Marine Corps, but I want to see those two or three immediately after in the dining hall. He turned smartly and sat down. When he arrived in the dining hall, almost every single student was lined up in front of the Marine Corps recruiting table. It was the challenge that caught their attention. It was the challenge. Will you rise to this, or are you going to be one of those who won't make the cut? You see, what the recruiter was saying was, the Marines only want people who are willing to rise to the challenge. Those who are ready and willing to give their total commitment. No one else need apply. So my friends, if that's what the Marines are looking for, what do you suppose God is looking for? What is God searching to and fro looking for? Those who can go halfway but not the whole way? Or is he looking for more like David? Those whose hearts are chasing after him and him alone. Psalm 53 verse 2 says, God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. 
In the wicked days before the great flood, God searched for and found only one godly man on the entire planet, a man named Noah. Prior to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, God searched for just ten righteous people in order to save those cities. But he could only find one man named Lot. In the days of the prophet Ezekiel, when the nation of Israel had turned to God in order, pardon me, turned from God in order to serve idols, God declared in Ezekiel 22 and verse 30, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land, so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. I want you to notice here that the common theme is that whenever sin and evil and the willful rejection of God occurs in a land, God searches that land, seeking for someone who might stand in the gap before him so that he might yet show mercy, so that he might not have to yet pour out judgment and wrath, so that he might give further opportunity for people to turn their hearts back to God. And I believe that the day is here where God is again searching the land. I believe that the time has come where he is seeking through this nation for those who will stand in the gap before him so that he might yet show mercy, so that he does not need to unleash judgment upon our land. But I believe that the tipping point is coming. Who will he find who will stand before him with a pure heart, with a willing heart, with a fully committed heart, Because as we see the willful rejection of God rising up around us in our nation, in the land to the south of us, we know that judgment draweth nigh. This has always been the course of things. This will always be the way of things. And as we see wickedness rise, it is also a call for the righteous to rise. For us to stand up and be counted and say, God, we will stand in the gap. We will be counted amongst the righteous. Would you yet show mercy? Would you yet heal our land? This is what God was looking for in the time of King Saul and David, and it is what he is looking for today. Because in every culture, in all times, when the cup of iniquity is full, there comes a point where God says, Enough. I will allow the consequences of your rebellion and your sin to follow you, and you will reap them in full. This is what happened to King Saul, and by the time he realizes it, by the time he confesses his sin and begs for forgiveness, it was too late. God had already chosen his replacement. And so I want you to consider this. If God is looking around Killarney right now, and I believe that he is, I believe God is looking around this town, this province, this nation, looking for those whose hearts are fully committed to him, all the way in, holding nothing back, If he were to search this town of Killarney and even the pew that you're sitting in right about now, what will he find? What will he discover when he looks within your heart? And so today we want to learn the lesson of King Saul and of David and Samuel. The first lesson is very simple and very clear don't be like Saul. Don't allow whatever abilities and gifts that God has given you to give you a false estimation of yourself, to think that that is somehow what has impressed God, won you his favor. Whatever successes you've achieved in your life, whatever gifts you now currently have are a gift from him. 
He is the one who knits you together in your mother's womb. He is the one who's blessed you with whatever physical skill or abilities you have. He is the one who gave you your intellect, your mind, your abilities. Whatever you have is a gift from him. So whatever you achieve, give him the glory. Don't build monuments in your own honor. Build them in his honor. Make the name of the Lord famous in your life. Give him the glory and the credit for absolutely everything, and God will be pleased. His name will be glorified. Don't be like Saul. Learn the lesson that when God elevates us, it is not for our own exaltation. It is for his. And so give the glory to God. Secondly, we want to learn the lesson of Samuel. And Samuel, of course, was a man who was fully obedient to God, but even he made a mistake. He made the mistake that is so typical of all of us He simply judged a book by its cover. He judged by man's evaluation and criteria. He looked at the outward appearance. But God told Samuel, I judge by what is on the inside. I look at the heart. And so we want to learn to be like God. When we evaluate others' lives, don't judge the way man judges. Don't write people off by what you see on the outside or lift them up by what you see on the outside. Look as God looks. See as God sees. See the hidden inner potential that each person has. And when we look out into the world and the community around us, and we're so quick to write off people who don't know him, who are living far from him, and we say, well, look at their lives. How could they ever be right with God? Don't judge as man judges. See as God sees. There is hidden inner potential in each one to have a heart that beats after God. And let's choose to look for that. And call it out. And so let's learn the lesson of Samuel. And finally, and most importantly, let's learn the lesson of David. Let us pursue God wholeheartedly. Let us be after him more than anything else in life and chase after his heart. So let me ask you today, do you desire God more than anything else? Are you committed to living life his way? Are you ready to stand in the gap for a nation that is rapidly turning her back against God and his ways? Are you ready to count the cost and be willing to suffer for following Jesus and standing upon his truth without apology and without compromise? Do you truly desire to be used by God in whatever way he sees best in order to help turn lost people towards him? If so, then you have the kind of heart that impresses God, the kind of heart that God will strengthen with his spirit. And we read that the conclusion of this text is that when Samuel anointed David, it says God's spirit fell upon him and worked in him powerfully from that day forward. My friends, if you want God's anointing and his power at work in your life, seek him with a whole heart and God will delight in pouring out his strength and presence into your life and to use your life for him and for his glory. And so like David, if you're the runt of the litter, if you don't think very highly of yourself and you know others don't, don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. Seek God. And regardless of your abilities or lack thereof, God will always use a ready and willing heart. In conclusion today, I want to share with you just this little story that I've heard before, I've shared before, but I want to share it with you again. A Christian woman once ran across the word consecration in one of her studies, and it confused her. So she she went to her preacher and asked, what does consecration mean? So the preacher reached over and he picked up a blank sheet of paper. He, He handed it to her just like this. 
He took out a pen and he signed. He signed the paper and he held it up to her and he said, This is what consecration means. You sign your name to the paper when it's blank and you let God fill in whatever he wills with your life. That is consecration. Are you ready to sign your name on a blank piece of paper and hand it over to God? That is what God desires of us. And that is what God delights in using. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who delights in using those who are holy and simply committed to you. Lord, we don't have to impress you with abilities or skills or anything. We just got to come to you as we are, with whatever we have, with what little we have to offer, and say, here's my life, Lord. It's fully yours. I'm signing my, my life over to you. You fill in the blank. You tell me what my life will entail, and I will follow with a whole heart. That is what David did, and look how you filled in the pages. It is incredible to think of what you can do with one life, wholly consecrated, wholly yielded unto you. And so, Father, may we today search our hearts, allow you to search our hearts, to seek us, to search us, and try us, and to see, Lord, if there is anything that is stopping us from being fully committed to you. And so, Father, we pray that if whatever is there, whatever you find, remove it from us, that we may seek you with a whole heart. And as we do so, Lord, we pray that you would be merciful upon our nation. Lord, we choose today to stand in the gap. We choose today to stand before those who are willfully refusing to follow your ways, willfully choosing to reject you to your face, to deny your very existence. And we stand before you, Lord, and we cry out, be merciful. Not because we deserve it, Lord, but because you are a God who delights in showing mercy. And so, Father, we pray that in your mercy, would you renew us, revive us, fill us with your strength again, so that we can call more to yourself, and that others could turn back to you before it's too late. We do this all for your glory, Lord, for your name and for your fame, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.